0: I got to pick out a new song for the band to try this morning, and I considered asking them to do a special Mother's Day edition of Baby Shark. (laughs) Yeah, but I decided against it. Sorry. I'm sure you can hear it elsewhere if you would like. But but I loved hearing our band play that song this morning, especially because I learned that song from my mother. My mother was born in 1947 and so full disclosure i grew up on a 100 percent boomer generation soundtrack that was what was playing in the car when i was a little kid we had the beach boys the stones the temptations dylan especially the beatles my mother was a huge beatles fan and i had the entire white album committed to memory by the time i was a toddler which yes does make for kind of a trippy childhood but I turned out okay. For what it's worth, that single hit from Buffalo Springfield, a band that didn't live very long but included Stephen Stills and Neil Young, two greats of that generation. That is the text for our message today, part of this Songs of the Spirit series where we look at the lyrics and the deeper meaning behind some songs that are beloved and familiar to us. And I know that I heard this song for the first time because my mother played it for me. I did the math this week, and I realized that the year this song came out, in 1966, my mom would have been 19 years old. This song was written for her and her generation. How many of you remember when this song came out? We're alive in 1966. Yeah, a few of you. This song was written for you and your generation. But what's striking to me is that I'd forgotten about this song completely until someone played it for me recently. And hearing it today, after years of the Black Lives Matter movement and school shootings getting more and more common over the last 20 years and the march for our lives and the election of 2016, it suddenly felt like this song is also for my generation. It may sound cliche, but even though it came out nearly 20 years before I was born, doesn't this song feel like it could have been written yesterday? Yeah. I feel a bunch of different ways about that. We see the same kinds of scenes every week playing out on the news that Stephen Stills is singing about. Battle lines being drawn. Nobody's right if everybody's wrong. A thousand people in the street singing songs and carrying signs mostly say, hooray for our side. As the kids these days say, I feel a little personally attacked by that song. (laughs) It's very relatable. It's too relatable. It seems like there are more people engaged in public protest today than at any other time since the 1960s. And we have some of the very same themes running through our activism police brutality, racism, reproductive rights, a distrust of our government, and maybe most poignantly, a generation of young people who feel like their lives are being treated as disposable. In the 60s and the 70s, it was because they were being shipped overseas to fight the Vietnam War. Today, it's because they are the collateral damage in our political battle over gun control. But it is the same underlying feeling of being disposable, of being pawns in somebody else's game. Now, when it feels like a song from 1966 could have been written just as easily for today, I think it's a sign that we need to do exactly what still sings in the chorus. We need to stop. We need to stop and take a look around us. And we need to find a way to do something differently. When we come back to the same place that it feels like we started from, when we feel like we're stuck in some kind of pattern or a loop, when we feel like we can't keep going like this, that is a sign that it's time for a change. Now, one of the most resonant parts of this song, for me, hearing it today, is that line about young people speaking their minds, because we see that everywhere right now, right? For sure. But I do think we have to be careful. We have to remember, right? When we talk about youth culture or youth movements, first of all, we should remember that young people are not necessarily all the same, obviously, right? Not all young people are a monolith on every single issue, And second of all, we need to remember that just blindly following the young people, right, the youths, glorifying them like they are some magical, innocent set of people who have all the answers, well, that puts a lot on their shoulders, and it can get us into trouble. I heard a story recently about this from a colleague of mine, another UU minister named the Reverend Alice King. She didn't grow up UU. She went to a Southern Baptist church as a child, And when she was in fifth grade, when she was 11 years old, she remembers a big hubbub in the church about a vote that they were going to be taking. Everybody was gathered in the church on Sunday morning because they were voting to decide whether or not to continue having an Easter morning sunrise service. How many of you have ever been to a sunrise service? Yeah, they start at sunrise, right? So early. And Easter morning is the biggest day, typically, of a church's year when there's a lot of attendance, a lot of visitors. And Easter Sunday happens after Holy Week. So all the staff and the minister and the volunteers of the church do a Palm Sunday service, and then they do an Ash Wednesday service, and then they do a Maundy Thursday service, and then they do a Good Friday service, and maybe a Holy Saturday service, and then they get up extra early before their regular Easter services to have a sunrise service. And the people in this church were ready to let that go. The new pastor who would just been hired also seemed like he wasn't very interested in it. So they thought, this might be the year, guys. Let's take a vote. And first they asked everyone assembled who wanted to let go, get rid of the Easter sunrise service. And nearly everyone in the room raised their hands. And then they asked the opposite, who wants to keep our Easter sunrise service and little Alice Lynn King. She says, I remember my arm went up so high pressed against my ear, drunk with power. (laughs) I was the only person who raised their hand in the whole room. And the kind pastor looked at me from the stage and said, well, Alice Lynn, I'm sorry. And I called out to him and the whole empty church The whole empty sounded church. Well, to me, it just isn't Easter without a sunrise service. And it was quiet for a minute. And then another adult in the back of the room said, That's what I think too, Alice. And then others started to echo her, and they retook the vote. And we had a sunrise service that year, and every year after, as far as I know, and when I had to get up at 5 a.m. that Sunday, I knew what regret felt like. (laughs) And every year thereafter, she said, I still want sometimes to write them a letter and just say, I am so sorry, Hickory Grove Baptist Church. So thank God for the kids, right? But we shouldn't always listen to them. This idealistic thing about, you know, following the children. It might take us to some places that we regret. But then, of course, there are young people today who are speaking a little bit more carefully. With a little bit more consideration about their experiences. Young people who have stopped and taken that look around and are fully aware of what they're seeing. And they are absolutely saying some things that we adults need to hear. I saw an article last month in the Denver Post about this group of teenagers right here. This is just a small group of a much larger group that is working with a nonprofit in Colorado, hosting small group gatherings to talk about mental health, to have a place where they can share openly, without stigma, about what they are going through, and to talk about clinical issues in mental health and also just the day-to-day experiences of their lives and to understand it all a little bit better. And the headline of this article is what grabbed me immediately because it put a finger on something that makes total sense but that I hadn't actually seen talked about before. The headline was, Teens are more open to talking about mental health and suicide. But they say adults are slow to catch up. And it makes perfect sense, right? The article says their parents, their teachers, their school administrators, with the best intentions, still all came of age during a time when this was an uncomfortable and awkward topic. Grew up in a time when mental health issues were pushed under the rug, avoided, dismissed, laced with stigma and shame. And that programming, even if we want to, doesn't just automatically get overcome, one of the young women in the group, a woman named Anna Neff, she's 15, she talks about how even though there's been a spate of recent suicides at her high school, she says the support kind of flares up right afterwards. Right? There's more conversations, there's more counselors to talk to for a little while, but ultimately nothing really changes about the culture and the patterns and the structures that they're all in. All of those old habits that we fall back on mean that we still fail to treat mental health as a valid and important issue all of the time because we have mental health all of the time, not just in the wake of a tragedy. And Anna says that means that the next kid who is sitting there who might be struggling is taking all of that in and watching people try to get back to normal while their struggle is still going on. Now, the experts that they interview for this story acknowledge that schools probably aren't the best place for kids to receive this kind of support because that's not a school's mission, right? A school's priority is to provide students with an education. But unfortunately, community-based mental health resources, other mental health resources are few and far between. The American Psychological Association found last year that a third of millennials and Generation Z what for now we're calling the group younger than millennials, have sought and received some kind of professional mental health support. So there is a positive generational shift happening here of people recognizing, young people recognizing, that this is part of life. But it's the adults in many cases who are the ones that control the resources and make the decisions about what to fund and who to hire. And they are the ones that often have not caught up to what the young people are seeing. When it comes to violence and issues in school and mental health, young people are asking us to stop, to look around at what's happening, and not to just keep barreling forward with the way that we've been doing things. And it's hard and scary sometimes to stop and look around and see that things are not getting better. It's scary to see that unless we actually make some big changes, things will get worse. We don't want to believe that. But it's necessary. Because there are so many ways that we are failing to really stop and see each other right now. This graphic was shared by another colleague of mine. It is sort of a a video animation of uh, some data put together by the data crunchers at uh, Business Insider. And it shows in the time period from 1949 until recently, 2013, a graphic representation of patterns of agreement between members of the U.S. House of Representatives. So it takes a little explaining. Right? On the On the images that you're about to see, every blue dot represents a Democratic member of the House, and every red dot represents a Republican member of the House. And when Democrats agree, there are blue lines between them, and when Republicans agree, there are red lines between them. But for every Democrat and Republican who ever voted together on an issue, there's a gray line drawn between them. And if that pair of people voted many times, the gray line is thicker. So where you see a lot of gray, that means a lot of agreement across party lines. So this is the first image that they put together from the... uh, 81st Congress in 1949. And you see a lot of blue dots, a lot of red dots, a lot of gray, a lot of those different lines connecting people across different issues. The next one shows the 60s. So this is 1967 when the song that we're talking about came out, a time that we think of as pretty polarized, right? This is the latest one. 2011 to 2013. Yeah. Now, somebody pointed out to me after the first service, right? Not all gray gray areas actually are good, right? And sometimes when we think about the issues that were happening in 1949, we were working through some things. And some of that agreement across party lines was about issues that we've made progress on since then, right? Segregation, women's rights. But what you'd hope is that that would work itself out and come back around and that we'd have made progress and people would agree again on those issues. And instead, we seem to be pulling ourselves farther and farther apart. We can't keep going on like this. It's not working. When our whole world starts to feel like it's standing on edge and it's threatening to tip over, when it seems like things are changing and they're getting worse, it is natural for us to get scared. This is natural for us to retreat to our corners and to the safety of what we know. And we naturally might wait for someone, right, hoping that the right presidential candidate or the right author or the right inspirational figure will show up and make sense of it all and save us. But in our faith, in our tradition, we believe in partnership and we believe in co-creation. We believe that, yes, there is probably some kind of power out there, some higher power that calls to us, but that power asks us to roll up our sleeves, too. Just like Kathleen said in her message a few weeks ago, God has no hands but these hands. We are partners. And we are powerful when we see ourselves as partners with the divine, with that love that has a capital L in front of it. In the times when we have understood that, we have changed things in our history. Big things and small things. We saw that happen in 1966. We changed things. We saw it happen in 1866. That's the time period when this holiday that we celebrate today, Mother's Day, was first planted as a seed in the relationship between a woman and her mother, Ann Reeves Jarvis. That's Ann Reeves Jarvis. She was a mother and a wife. She didn't have an education. She wasn't wealthy. She lived in West Virginia before and during and after the Civil War, a state that was right on the Mason-Dixon line, that border between North and South, surrounded by people who were killing each other and dying in the power struggle over the changing world around them. Anne was an organizer. Before we probably knew to call her a community organizer, that's what she did. In a society that was coming apart at the seams, Anne stopped and she looked around and she thought about what can I do differently? What can we do differently to bring people together? And she started an organization that brought mothers together for mutual support. They were called Mother's Day Work Clubs. Her clubs brought these women together to help each other raise their children and to keep a home. And she made a real concrete difference in the lives of those women and their families She also didn't stop there in 1868 after the war had ended, Anne built on her work to organize a Mother's Friendship Day in her home state. Gathering not just the mothers now, but also their sons, former Union and Confederate soldiers. And not for practical support anymore, but to promote reconciliation. To work on dialogue and connection where there had been so much distance and harm and violence. She threw her energy behind healing the broken hearts and the broken bonds in her community. And it was Anne's daughter, 50 years later, who led the campaign to add a Mother's Day holiday to our national calendar in honor of her mother's example. Maybe your mother taught you some brave things, too, by example. I know that my mother taught me a lot about how to be brave and to live in the face of change. Back when she was 19, in 1966, the world was changing all around her. And she was stopping and looking around and making some choices about doing things differently. She pushed back against her parents when they Told her they just didn't really understand why she would want to go to college, the first in her family, because you don't need a college degree to be a wife and a mother. But she did it anyway. She paid for her own college education. And then she got married and got a divorce at 23. She did a bunch of things that were not so normal, quote unquote, at the time. She went off on her own and had a career as a journalist. And she waited until the very old age at the time of 36 to have me. And I know that many of us, many of you, have either had or witnessed some brave moments in your lives. Maybe a time where you stopped and looked around and said, I can't keep going on like this. And even though it was terrifying and new, you decided to do something differently. You may have left an abusive partner or broken free from a dysfunctional family. You may have come out or transitioned, found a way to be more fully yourself. You may have left a career path to pursue something completely new. You may have sought recovery to put an end to the cycle of addiction in your family. You may have decided not to become a mother, despite all the pressure around you. You may have chosen fulfillment or healing on some path that was never what other people expected. And it may have been hard for a time. It probably was isolating. You might have felt those battle lines being drawn all around you. You might even be able to call up the people in your mind, all the people who weren't happy about the choices that you were making. But the alternative to be small and always afraid just wouldn't work. So you rolled up your sleeves. It gives me hope when I stop and look around and remember that we have done this before. We've done this as individuals and as a society. We have recognized that what we're doing now isn't working, that we can't keep going on like this, and we have found ways to do something different and to walk a new path. So on this Mother's Day, may we be inspired by our mothers if they showed us how to do this by their example. May we listen to the people we love when they are out there speaking their minds. And may we be inspired by everyone who has walked that path of creative bravery before us. Amen. And may you live in blessing. I invite you to pray with me. Co-creator, great power, whose other name is love. May we always remember the truth of our connection to you and to each other. That it is in the very air that we breathe. It's in the stuff that our bodies are made of. Even when those connections feel thin and frayed. May we look in those moments for the places that they are still there. And build on those places wherever we can. For these prayers that I've offered and spoken aloud and for the prayers that each person in this room carries on their hearts, we say amen.